Welcome to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio podcast, hosted by Peter O'Toole, sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. Today on The Microscopists. Hi, this week on The Microscopists, I meet Anne Carpenter from the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard as we discuss surviving imposter syndrome. Does it matter if I'm the best the, the best scientist in the room or the smartest person or what? Like, does any of that really fundamentally matter or are there other aspects of my life that give me meaning and value? Overworking microscopes. Um, they sent another one and then within a week it was burnt out again. <laughs> I called them back and they're like, what are you doing with that shutter? The simple joy of chocolate chip cookies. I've made, it's gotta be in the thousands of batches of cookies at this point in time. And the best way to get round nose to tail eating when growing up on a farm. I can't remember. I think we always gave all the weird bits to my grandmother. Um, so I don't recall ever having any of the, the sort of funkier parts that a person might want to eat. All in this episode of The Microscopists. Hi, welcome to today's episode of The Microscopists, and today I'm joined by Anne Carpenter from the Broad Institute over in the US. Anne, uh, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, whichever time of day it is. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. So, Anne, uh, firstly, thank you very much. Uh, I guess one of the things you're most famous for is self-profiler, and as a microscopist running a core lab, lots of users, and we've pointed lots of users in the direction of self-profiler as the, the, the platform to go to for large cell analysis. Uh, I, even my PhD student was actually recently on a course uh, for, which was co-run by yourself at EMBL. Oh. Uh, yeah, so yeah, it, it's been a huge asset to us. But I guess to many listeners, they may not even, or viewers, they might not even understand the importance of image analysis, which seems really easy, doesn't it? You just look at a cell and you analyze it, but it's not. So, Anne, I, I, do you, give me two minutes on this, because actually I think so many people do not understand the difficulties in image analysis. And we'll come to lots of other things later, but it'd be great to hear why this is so important. Well, I think it's something that um, the younger generations of scientists are um, kind of born in a world where you quantify images. Um, some of us grew up in a time where images from micro microscopes were just uh, either observed by eye or just one snapshot is what makes it into the paper. But I think it's increasingly becoming the norm that uh, if you see something by eye, that's not enough. You really you really want to quantify any behaviors that you're that you're seeing in samples and. So uh, it's important, of course, um, for reproducibility and for being sure that you're not fooling yourself of what you're seeing uh, by eye. But then uh, the, the domain of science that my laboratory tends to focus on is this high throughput microscopy world where it's just an absolute necessity that it's, um, when I was first starting my career, people really did uh, look through piles and piles of images, um, often hundreds of thousands in order to do a screen. Um, People certainly did that by dissecting fly eyes and looking at fly wings as well. Um, but um, these days, it's it's really becoming quite standard to to quantify, and, and especially in the high throughput world, there's there's really no 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 serious alternative these days to to quantifying images. Which is obviously really important for research, but also for pharmaceutical companies for drug trials, uh, 
and just see on global analysis, we, we think of when you add a drug or a compound to something, we need to see the changes. And actually quite often we can see that by our naked eye or some changes within that population, but quantifying it, well, surely if I can see it, it's, it's really easy. No? Uh, that is true. If you can see it, uh, the quantification should be pretty straightforward. And I think we really can say that now. I think 10 years ago, uh, it was still the case that a lot of phenotypes were challenging, a lot of um, organisms were challenging, a lot of cell types were challenging. And now the out of the, the pie of all the things you might wanna measure, I would say um, it's really, the, the, the proportion that is uh, difficult is really pretty, it's becoming a small sliver at this point. So um, if somebody's working with kind of a standard mammalian cell type, um, most phenotypes, if you can see them by eye, they can be not just, not just can they be quantified like by collaborating with a computer scientist for six months, but they can be quantified using off the shelf tools that are really convenient and easy, easy for any, any biologist to be able to learn how to use. So I've, I've got, I, you know, I, I'll come back to you after this meeting because I've got loads of label free uh, quantitative phase <laughs> images. That we are still struggling to really get. Okay, so that's, so that's part of the sliver that's still a little challenging. So I will say, um, you know, certain cell types like neurons um, can, can, you know, the signal to noise and everything, it's quite, quite a challenge. Um, and, uh, and bright field phase imaging uh, can, can also be a bit of a challenge, but it's it's we're right on the cusp especially with deep learning methods with bright field and, and phase images we're just right on the cusp of these becoming uh, more and more tractable yeah I, I think the quantitative phase images are, are pseudo fluorescence in a way but anyway we will talk about that later but that comes to an interesting point you, you introduce yourself and you're talking about computer scientists uh, but that's not where you started out life uh, so and I think that's really valuable to us as biologists that you are one of us you're a life scientist so i think you had your biological sciences degree at purdue that's, that's right and then a phd so i did some background research over at illinois champagne is that correct as well yeah yeah you, you got my credentials yeah but okay so, so that's fine that's into molecular biology how did you get into computer science i think um yeah, out of necessity is the, is the short answer to that question. So for my own project that I needed to accomplish during my PhD, it became clear that I was going to need to, um, it's just too tedious. It was literally holding up a, a ruler to the screen of the computer to measure things. And, um, and I, I said, oh gosh, there's gotta be a better way because I don't, I don't wanna fool myself to thinking I'm seeing things that I'm not and so on. And I really wish this could be a, a bit more uh, objective and automated. And so I started um, dorking around a little bit with it. Uh, with ImageJ at the time, NIH Image at the time, and um, and just really fell in love with the the. Um, it just feels like magic, honestly, when you take all these messy images and each one is a little unique and has some you know some funny things going on with it. But then when you take dozens of them and you extract all their metrics and you end up with uh, nice little scatter plots of data, it just to me it's really be a beautiful thing to be able to turn the kind of, kind of messiness of biology into something a little more. Um, more measurable. That, so, so, so from my side, I used to measure things with rulers and I'd still be tempted to measure things by rulers, but I guess that's very old school there for some bits. Uh, how do you make that transition though? Because that, that's not an easy switch because then you, that became, you, you built a tool or tried to develop a tool to solve that, but then that became your career. So it kind of moved out of the life science and into this, this huge asset and the computer science side. How do you skill yourself? 
We've yeah, so I, I think the, the reason I was successful in that transition is because I didn't realize I was doing it at the time. I, if I had known um, that was ahead of me, I'm not sure I would have been so brave as to as to make the leap. But um, I had that exposure during my P, end of my PhD for my project. And then during my postdoc at the Whitehead Institute with David Sabatini, he was creating um, these uh, live cell microarrays that were producing data at a image data at a scale that was um, previ previously not common. And so um, it was clear in that project, I was going to need some automated analysis. So I really just started um, by surveying the existing tools and found nothing was going to do what I needed. And so I, I found a couple of papers that I could scarcely understand, but were from the computer science literature that looked like they had algorithms that would help me. But as you might be aware, computer science um, papers almost never have code that go with them. Even if they did have code, it's uh, unclear whether I would have been able to execute such code by on my own at that time. So I just um, reached out um, literally a mass email to the MIT computer science department um, grad student list and just said, I need help on my project. I have some fellowship money. I can pay you hourly for your time. Can anybody help me implement this algorithm for my project? And connected with um, Thoas Ray Jones, and um, he implemented the algorithm in a weekend. It was very straightforward for him to be able to do it. And um, that really started, it, it, seeing the effect of that on my project um, really got me hooked. And so we ended up collaborating. He ended up switching his thesis project to, to work entirely on this. Um, and uh, over time, I ended up focusing more and more on the software and less and less on any particular biological problem. I started helping everybody in the departments around us um, working on their projects. And the software tool, which I never intended to become a major thing. Um, it was really just for me and, and my friends, so to speak. Um, eventually, it became clear that this was filling a niche uh, for, for automated high throughput analysis that wasn't being served by the, the existing software. So, and that software, I presume, is self profiler. Yep. At this point. Uh, so, 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 you said you, you built that to you, for you to use, and then obviously your friends started using it because they saw the benefits of it. Now it's used by almost everywhere. Most universities across the world will be using this. It, it, the impact is huge. It's free to use. It costs nothing. Do you regret not commercializing it? Not one bit, not one bit. And I, I mean, for for two reasons, one noble and one practical. Uh, the, the practical one is that it's not easy making a living um, trying, to, trying to wrench dollars out of biologists, right? I mean, given a choice, most biologists are like, oh, you know, cost 15 bucks for this thing, or I could just, you know, sort of finagle it myself in some other way. Um, so I think partly it's really just the practical that it's, it's hard to sell software to, to scientists in general. We're sort of used to everything being kind of free or coming with the microscope or it's 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 not easy and i think if you if you buy commercial software um hearing people complain about the cost of commercial software i mean it's just the reality that's how much it costs to have the the marketing department and the and the um and the actual engineering that goes into a tool and so on it's just it's an expensive enterprise we're a small community so things are going to cost quite a lot so i didn't think it was very practical at the time um but then of course there's also the noble reason which is um it just seemed to me at the time, you know, the world doesn't need another commercial package. The world needs um, for this field, which at the time was just about to take off this whole high content imaging, really high throughput imaging field. Um, it just seems like this, this, this is what the world needs right now is, is something open that can be readily adopted. And I think if I make it open, it'll be very well um, taken care of. So I think the things that have made me slightly regret the choice is when I try, when I try to obtain funding for the software. Um, so, you know, every, every day, a couple of papers come out that cite 
using the software. It's, it's very useful across the community and it's not a lot of money, usually just one software engineer to maintain a, a software project um, of, this, of this scope. It's like an incredible bargain from the funding agencies perspective but at times when when grants have come come through rejected i've been like ah oh, you know if if only if only we could get some amount of in, you know just a little bit of income to to make this thing support itself that would be maybe maybe that would be a, a way to go or maybe we'll splash ads on the on the software from time to time uh, it's it's been a little bit of a struggle to try to figure out how to keep it funded but um i do have to say we've been extraordinarily um we're just really grateful for the support of um mostly two agencies over the time over time one is the national institutes of health which is the major US funding agency. And then also the surprisingly came along the Chan Zuckerberg Institute has, um, has, take it, has adopted this bioimaging um, ecosystem as one that they wanna invest in. And it really couldn't, it couldn't have come at a better time because it's a real struggle otherwise to, to make software engineering um, you know, financially solvent in the, in the academic world. So I, I think that's interesting to hear because you're hugely successful you know you're at the broad institute you know, you're harvard mit behind you and but it's still not a given you still have to fight to get even the basics kept running and yeah you know, the impact I, I think actually if you'd have commercialized it it you would not have had the impacts across science that you've managed by having it free with i think that actually that route that i think there's a world for both commercial and freeware I, I i don't i neither is wrong and i, I don't see the commercial world as evil far from it there can be lots of support as you say it's keeping it running and supporting that's why there's a cost to it but i think your impact across science and it's not just biology or microbiology it's it's a broad impact that you've been able to have because you went to freeware in this instance uh which is terrific but it's great that uh You've got funding now, because I was going to say it's amazing that some of the big pharmaceuticals don't club together and just, you know, just holistically put some money in because they they yeah. use it. They're big benefactors <laughs> right. from it. That's right. And uh, well, our, our software project is is quite secure at the moment. There are other software projects that aren't. And it's um, it's amazing to me that we haven't figured out a decent mechanism to make that work. Right. Because, again, you know, a, soft, a software engineer um, to work on a project is typically all, all you really need. You don't need, you know, 20 or 30 of them working together on most of these projects that are so useful in the scientific community. So even just funding one of them, you know, it's it's 10 or 15K from a dozen companies that make use of the software would, would make most of these software projects be very, very happy. Um, but we just haven't quite figured out how to how to make that work in, a, in more of a social, cultural kind of way. Like pharma company, you know, send me an invoice, I'll pay it, but I don't really know how to sort of make a donation um, to, to something that I, that I value. So it, it sounds from that, so we've got to be careful here, that it's, it's you and one other person, and it's far from that. Uh, and I have, I, 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 ah, I, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I can't find that picture of the background for your, your team. So how big is your team? Yeah, so, um, so typically my team is around uh, 10 people, but um, only 
less than half of them in the past few years or so, less than half have been focused on um, image analysis per se. Um, my group is moving a bit more towards the data science and machine learning of, of image-based data. And so um, that I would call is very separate. So as far as the actual software engineers for the Cell Profiler project, it's almost always been around, on average, it's been one, one software engineer for the past um, 14 or 15 years. I was the, the first uh, quasi-software engineer um, and then and Ray Jones um, as well, but um, it's that's not that's not a huge undertaking. But you're absolutely right; it's not a it's not a one person effort in in the real sense because we also have um, in in my group alone we have three or four people who uh, use the software all the time. They're um, engineering savvy enough to. Uh, identify problems and in some cases fix fix individual bugs that they encounter in their own work. And so um, there's a saying in the software world that we eat our own dog food that we um, we we have to deal with the with the um, with the software as it is. And of course, um, that makes us want to make it constantly better. And so, yeah, the, the, there's about half the group that's focused on image analysis. Most of them are focused on applications and not necessarily the engineering of the software itself. Um, but there's it's a very blurry line because a lot of folks in the group work across both sides. So uh, just thinking about your team, I, I've met Beth a few times. Uh, how is Beth? She's doing very well, thank you. Yeah, yeah cool. so that's Dr. Um, this is um, Dr. Beth Simony. She's um, been with me ever since um, uh, around 2016 or so. And uh, she's now leading the, the, this side of the group that I just described, the whole image analysis. Um, she, she, runs, she launched and runs a um, bioimage analysis training program that is our, our mission. Well, I'm sure there's an official mission statement somewhere, but the way I see it is it's, it's a, it's a method of turning biologists and microscopists into, into employable image analysts. Um, so, so moving people more towards the computational direction where, um, where they can really have a, a meaningful career helping people do, um, do image analysis. So it's a, so it's a big team. And, and so they, they're your children, but actually I think this picture here. So uh, there we go. Can you describe who is in this photo, please? Yeah, so those are my my five kids. I have um, the three older are my my stepkids, and the two little ones are are my biological kids. And um, yeah, I, I I was just thinking about it this morning that I I acquired them over a five year period, so it went from zero to five <laughs> in a pretty short period of time, kind of kind of high throughput there. And uh, it, it's definitely been a um, just an incredible transition in my life. I guess it's the way to say it. So you haven't segmented them yet and started tracking each individual. It, it, it's still in that five-year high throughput. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so how old are they all? The youngest is um, is just about to turn seven. Uh, yeah. So and then the the oldest is um, is uh, an employed teacher just just finished college um, out in Oklahoma. Yeah. That's cool. And how so? Uh, you had that five year spurt. So we're talking youngest is seven, uh, five years. Oh gosh, that's 12 years ago. So you're going to be quite early in your career still. That's right. So yeah, all, all of my, my um, children were acquired, let's say, um, just after I started my position at the Broad. And it is a funny question people ask, like, when is a good time to have children? And I think um, there's, I, I think you should probably not think about your career when deciding this question because there's there's just pros and cons for every career stage. Um, I, I think the advantage of having kids a little on the later side when I had my my independent um, PI position, um, the advantage there is I had enough money that I could hire 
housekeepers and um, and you know could uh, not worry so much about every little expense and and um, you know because a lot of times you, you just um, spend a lot of energy and time uh, when when you could replace that just with a little bit of extra money and so um, for me it was it was wonderful to have kids during that period of time on the other hand you could argue well the first um, you know first couple of years establishing my lab is just incredibly intense and it's sort of um, it's a pretty anxiety provoking time I mean of course you're anxious during the PhD, am I going to get a good? Am I going to get a good position afterwards? And during your postdoc, am I going to get a good position afterwards? There's anxiety throughout this the spectrum, um, but I think when you're starting a lab, like this could sink or swim. You, you really don't know if it's going to work out well, and you don't know to what extent is, um, you know, is is your vision for a lab really going to play out? Are the grants going to get funded? Is this really going to work out? So that was not the ideal time to be you know, up all night with, with babies and so on, but, um, but it, it, it worked out. So likewise, there's, there's all kinds of advantages to having kids in a, in a PhD or postdoc period, because um, your, your schedule's just, you're not responsible. If you're, if your project pauses for six months, no one in the universe is going to have a problem with that, right? It's, it, you know, it, it affects your productivity overall for sure, but, you know, you've got a three or four or five year time span, depending on what, what stage you're in. And, you know, it, but on the other hand, you have no money, so it's it's a, it can be a challenge that way as well. Yeah, I, I, I was going to say, you know, I think there's a lot of PhD students uh, and early postdocs that that would love to have children, uh, but but financially can't take that risk at that moment in time, and they know it's quite a nomadic life for quite you know, exactly. You don't have academia. the people move around cities, countries, continents. Yep. So not only do you not necessarily have your, you know, your nuclear family of origin support or extended family around, but you may not even have friends around because you've just moved um, to, to one location or another. So that's a, that's a real challenge of the, the typical scientific life. I mean, of course, you can make sacrifices and decide to stay in a, in a certain geographical area, but it's, 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 it, it's a sacrifice. It makes it, it has some trade offs in some other directions as well. So how did you, how did you balance having the children how, how 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 did you even segment your your thought process to to work is very yeah challenging. we are very focused people how did you partition that or how did you merge them I, yeah yeah so for me it was actually um it was not a, a a terribly difficult time and i think this advice is very applicable to to just about anyone so bef well before i had children back to the very first days of my phd i had decided that i was going to work during work hours and I was going to not work during not work hours and you know those work hours were typically 45 ish you know sometimes 50 or 55 but never 80 or never you know never um well okay occasionally they would just spill outside but um by by kind of enforcing that really early on my in my career when it didn't matter I didn't have anything to do outside of of work hours but um but you know volunteering and um, entertaining myself um but I think because I took that kind of structure really early on then um when I had children you know suddenly I had no leisure time outside of work it, you know it went from all work to and all leisure to all work and all kids um but at least it wasn't trying to shove a 70 hour work week into into 40 hours or something like that so um for me i would say the transition was was not as difficult as it would have been if if i had let work spill over in the first place um and so you know it i'm not going to say that it's um 
trivial. There's just a lot of logistics to a family with that many children. And, 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 you know, some of them have some special needs that are, that are a little bit challenging at times as well. And so um, it, it's definitely not, not trivial to, um, you know, I am pretty much doing something for somebody at every waking moment of my life, but um, uh, a little less so now that my youngest is seven, I actually, I, I actually do have leisure time again in my life, which is pretty exciting. Um, so it's not easy, but uh, I think it's a lot more manageable if you have kind of a, a bit of a, a lim put limits on your work life before you have children. I think it's a better transition. So you mentioned leisure time. What do you do in that leisure time? Yeah, so, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not that interesting. I, there was a, um, a TV show, the public television um, station wanted to do a TV show about women in science, um, like, more than a decade ago now, and they, they, they sort of asked me this question, and I went through my list of hobbies. They're like, you got anything else? You got anything else? Like, nothing, nothing interesting to televise, I guess, is the answer to your question. So my hobbies are reading, reading uh, baking, sitting around chatting with my friends, uh, you know, Know, dinner parties like this kind of thing so um yeah nothing nothing too nothing too dramatic or interesting I mean I guess I would say now my my leisure time is uh spending time with my kids and doing doing fun things going on hikes and stuff like that and, there's um, there's the baking yep yeah so so there's what your youngest is it are you like yep yeah, so, so actually so you are now doing baking and looking after your children at the same time uh, yep yep multitasking is is the name of the game that's right I think we all have a photo of our, our children baking at some point, just to remind them that when they it's were young, because so they, they don't anymore. <laughs> Actually, one's come back from university and decided that maybe his cooking's better than ours. So maybe, maybe when they leave, they decide that actually uh, our home cooking is no longer the best that's out there. And this, this picture interesting. Day. So this is a this is a Valentine's Day aftermath. Um, one of the things that's been really fun um, with my kids lately is um, they've gotten. I mean, I, I don't I don't know how to convey this. I don't I don't want to make it sound like oh my 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 children are scientific geniuses and everybody every scientist's kids should also be because this is actually a fairly new development. But um, it's it was hilarious. We got some kind of science-related handbook and a little lab notebook for, for Christmas. And so when we got some flowers for Valentine's Day, the first thing the girls wanted to do was chop them up into bits and, and name name all the different parts. <laughs> so this is the, the aftermath of Valentine's Day at our house just a few weeks back. That's pretty cool. Uh, do to have you put slices of these or elements under the microscope so they can see it in more detail yet? Oh, that's a great idea, but no, we haven't. We do have a, a little teeny toy microscope uh, oh. laying around. Yep. <laughs> You just need to find an old one that works throwing away and bring it home. I, yeah. Actually, I, I haven't put, I, yeah, I haven't done that. I hated microscopy yeah. as a child, so I'm not, I'm, they will find it in their own time. Yeah, and I'm, I'm definitely hesitant. I, I hate the idea of kids feeling like, um, like they're pushed in a certain direction. And so we've tried to, to stay pretty, pretty open-minded. I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm adamant about my kids being curious and, and like, you know kind of questioning things about the world and pursuing things that interest them for sure but uh, I, I, I think I actually mostly hesitate away from science uh, when they're when they're expressing their interests just so that they they don't feel overly uh, shoved in that direction. Yeah no I, I think that's yeah, a wise decision and, and actually when they get smarter than you it, it's quite difficult that that's a learning process <laughs> when to, yeah some of them, yeah really smart cookies and it's just like well I don't know yeah. I'm, I'm bracing myself already. That's, that's why I'm also teaching them to be sort of um, humble and kind to those that are, are maybe not as, uh, as bright as they are, because that's probably going to be me someday. 
Yes, yeah, see, see, my eldest is actually a computer scientist. That's what he's studying at the moment. And uh, well, maths with computer science. And that, that's why I've got so much admiration for yourself because I just couldn't do it. <laughs> just uh, completely lost on it. And it's, yeah, he, he does it. So actually when I've got problems now at work, I can go to him. Excellent. And, and he's actually quite, <laughs> quite keen, but he hasn't seen the light when it comes to putting his skills towards biology yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he, he hasn't quite seen, because everything seems really trivial. Like he's going to watch this, listen to this, isn't he, at some point? Be like, oh, well, that would be easy. And I know it's not that easy uh -huh, from the uh -huh. tests I want to be done, but anyway. And that, that, is a, that is a real challenge for, for getting computer scientists into this field, is that it's very application-oriented, and the, just the reward system built into computer science departments does not reward applications. It rewards interesting theory and sort of clever, clever mathematics, and so that is a real challenge, is, is getting folks to be um, interested in working on problems that are, um, you know, sort of too easy for them. Uh, it's, it's a real problem. Yeah, but they're not that easy. <laughs> not, not when they <laughs> it, they're just conceptually easy until you want to do something. It's like, oh, <laughs> it's, it's oh, in, in practice. Yeah, yeah. In practice, yeah. it's it's easy enough to get something to work on one image or a handful of images. But then when you've yeah. got thousands, and I, I think actually that's why why self profiler has been really popular and really uh, successful is um, first of all, it was designed by a bi biologist who needed it, so it wasn't you know, designed by somebody who had no clue what our typical workflow is like. Um, and secondly, it was designed for the worst case scenario, which is you've got to run on 100,000 images and not tweak each one to, to make it work, right? It was really designed to be robust to a large image set, which then I think also translates to being robust across different laboratories, experiments, and, um, and so on. So I will come back to that in a minute, but you said a minute ago that one of your pastimes, one of your for leisure, you enjoy reading. So what sort of, what sort of reading? What are you into? Oh, sadly, oh, that's embarrassing because um, <clears throat> since since I've had um, had little ones, I would say almost all of my reading is on my phone, and and it's either Twitter or articles linked from Twitter. Is is has to be the vast majority of my reading material these days, um, just because it's just bits and pieces of time um, scattered throughout the day. Um, before that, um, I don't know. I, really the spectrum. I, I, I like historical fiction, historical nonfiction, um, uh, novels. It's really quite a broad, um, just uh, theology, like all kinds of things um, is, is what I used to read in the old days when I had, you know, the mental bandwidth to focus on something for a few hours on a Saturday. It's interesting. I have noticed you are a prolific retweeter uh, on Twitter itself, uh, which is, I, is I, and you support a lot of initiatives. So you're actually you do promote a lot of positive messages on there as well. Uh, so, so yeah, yes, I'm a follower. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so I keep. I, I was just, I was just thinking. My bio in in tw in 2016 or maybe 2015, I, I put, I will stop tweeting politics soon um, because I, I felt so sheepish of, of that aspect. But um, you know, over time, with the politics in America being what they are, uh, I I finally just took that out because it's probably not likely I'll stop tweeting politics. But I'm glad you're focusing on the other stuff, which is which is the kind of, um, you know, trying to trying to. I, I think it's really heartening to me to see uh, a lot of PIs, I'm not going to say my age, I just mean a kind of a new cohort of PIs, whether they're older than, than me or younger, really making an effort to make science, um, I'm not going to say a nurturing place, but at least a place that is less toxic, like can we at least start there and, and, and hopefully more so um, making it a, a place where um, people can do their best work. I think it, there's a lot of um, 
I don't think science selects for weirdos, but it certainly doesn't weed them out along the way in the same way that a lot of other careers do. And, um, and I think um, there's a lot of behaviors that just wouldn't be tolerated in other environments. And so I, I really, I, 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 I see this happening in, in the PIs that I talk to, that I, that I interact most with, uh, this real enthusiasm for creating, you know, a better place, like a, the kind of place we would have liked to train that's a, that's uh, more drama free than than what a lot of people have been subjected to in their careers. So, I, yeah, I think Twitter. For those who don't follow Twitter, actually, in the science, in the academic world, certainly the life sciences, it's a really good way to keep on top of your subject. There's loads of good stuff out there that comes out in in snap bites, easy to digest, and you can delve deeper because the links are there to delve deeper. I think different platforms are good for different purposes. Uh, I also use LinkedIn. But actually, that tends to grab a different community compared it's to be a bit more of the industry yeah. focused um, as well. Yeah, I, I don't see much on LinkedIn, but um, but whenever I do poke in there, I'm impressed by the degree to which it captures that community really well. No, I, and, and yeah, precisely. And that's it depends on what you're messaging or what you're wanting to read. And I think there's a still a, a, a sort of a misunderstanding. Twitter, certainly celebrity wise, is all about their conscious of thought. And I think in the science world, it's not about that mostly. It, it, it's about messages, information. You know, you can almost see whole publications printed with, 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 the, with the chains on it. It's like, oh my goodness. I can't That's right. Ricardo Henriquez might have posted 27 in one or something once. It's, it's like, this is brilliant. I can see all the figures, all the information. It, yeah, yeah. It, it was yeah, so it's it's a scientific content, and then it's also um, just sort of um, critiques and movements to to shove shove the community and the culture in a certain direction. So, um, for example, just peer review and open open um, open science, open data, open publications. There's just a lot of peer pressure on Twitter for um, for making science a more open place, which I think is a really great direction to be going. So, um, it, it is um, it's definitely a segment of the society. It doesn't reflect um, really all of science, um, but it, it for the most part reflects a, a direction of science that I'm excited about, and I, I hope hope in general that we move more towards. Yeah. So actually, I think for the people listening, watching, get on there. You know, I, I think there's a lot of resistance because they see it through different eyes. You know, follow the right people, put in the right tags, and, and you will learn loads. It will broaden your horizons. Your literature, it will do your literature reviews for you almost, your searches for you to many respects. So thinking about publications and literature reviews, what's, what's been your favorite publication that you've authored or co-authored? I have to say probably the, the cell profiler paper, um, which which was the product of my postdoc was was one that I was the most proud of because you know just every little thing being so intimately involved in every little figure and every little chunk of data that ends up you know each of it has a, a bit of a story behind it and what was really nice about that paper is that we um, I thought it was important to demonstrate it that it was useful across a wide variety of science so that meant I as I said all my friends who had different projects in different areas kind of uh, came together and were in that one paper um, for a more recent one. Um, it's hard to pick a paper, but just the, the whole cell painting, the whole cell painting um, series of, of papers, I think would be the, the one that I'm uh, most proud of as well more recently. And, um, and there it's just because we're um, now, um, the original assay was developed 
I guess that must be about a decade ago now. Um, but now we're just starting to see the fruits of it being adopted in the pharma industry. And we're starting to see drugs going into clinical trials that were um, discovered using this approach. And um, it's really, it's really been tremendously satisfying for me. So I, I think, again, we, we sort of touched on this at the start. And, and I think it's quite something that your impact now is on drugs and what could end up helping society in general. And that's never where you started this out. And this is the importance of blue sky research to an extent and encouraging more niche research. I'm not saying what you're doing was niche, but you know, no, 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 focused. No. but the impacts have been, you, we'd never envisaged this impact then. And the impact that it's had <coughs> is huge. And I, I think that's people, I don't think realize the importance of blue sky research. And, yeah, and for sure. You know, one, one phenomenon I, I love to see is um, no matter what random crisis is going on in the world, whether it's, whether it's a, a whether it's COVID, whether it's, um, you know, killer wasps, whether it's uh, ice shifting off a glacier. Um, what's fascinating to me is, you know, within, within hours, um, journalists have found some some scientists who's devoted the past you know, 40 years of their life to studying that exact thing, no matter how obscure it, it ends up being. And, you know, nobody, nobody cares about this period of re this type of, you know, nobody cares about coronaviruses until we've got a coronavirus outbreak. Nobody cares about killer wasps until, you know, they're suddenly rampaging across the, the Southwest. And so um, I just, I love that aspect of um, supporting basic research uh, that um, we're creating this stable of folks. I mean, I don't mean to imply that they're only useful because eventually they'll be useful someday. I, I mean, there's there's this inherent, like, let's understand the world better. It, it will probably be useful in some fashion in the future. It may not be immediately useful, but it's it's cool to figure out how things are working. So yeah, I'm definitely very, even though I, I would say my lab is pretty fiercely focused on, on applications and on translation on drug discovery um, these days, like really trying to be very practical about what's what's going to make a difference for, for humans in the next 10 years or something. We're, we're, we have a pretty short-term focus, I would say, in that sense, but I really appreciate the, the fact that there's basic researchers across the board studying all kinds of things. I think it's really important for society as a whole. So uh, what do you find the most fun aspect of your job then? most fun aspect i mean i i guess i have to be i have to be a nerd in the sense that just seeing seeing beautiful data and you know sh the, the social experience of sharing a view on some beautiful data for the first time is probably one of the highlights um so there you go. Uh, There's some lovely data. It, it's usually in the form of scatter plots and p-values these days, I but um, do that as well. Okay, yeah. There we go. There we go. So this this shows the cluster of genes uh, of genes that um, you know you overexpress these genes, and the cells look a certain way. And if you group cells based on the quantitative way that they look, this is what you get. A dendrogram that, uh, I mean, this this paper was so exciting to me because um, this is the Robon eLife paper that um, that was about overexpressing genes with with uh, and using cell painting to to cluster them. Basically, these clusters that came out of this experiment were um, 
recapitulating something, a, a tree of all these different pathways that have taken us biologists decades to figure out, you know, who binds to whom, who's nearby whom in the pathway, who's upstream and downstream, which, which ones are negative and positive regulators of pathway. And just looking at, um, looking quantitatively at how the cells look when there's a bit too much of that gene present, um, protein product, um, they, they naturally will fall into these clusters. I, I just thought that was really a, a, a beautiful, that was definitely a beautiful moment when, when we saw this kind of data coming out. I think it's one of the best virtual backgrounds I've had to date because it, it kind of just makes it look like I've got a, a sort of crown or something. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's quite, it's just, quite it's just, a different thing. I feel like a peacock. Science is just reading. Coming out the back or something. <laughs> <laughs> Which is certainly different. I, and that was interesting though, because again, you're, you're a microscopist or, or image analysis, computer scientist, and we're looking at genes and how technologies are merging together. And that's a big challenge for you now is, is to integrate, you know, that spatial transcriptomics and the imaging and putting those, the omics together with the imaging. Yeah. Yeah, so interdisciplinarity is the name of the game. It's it's hard to be an interdisciplinary science scientist. I think, you know, in general, if somebody's asking for career advice, the the easier path is to pick a thing and be very good at it. Um, when you're interdisciplinary, it means you just don't have time to be the absolute expert at, you know, the six different things or two different things that you're trying to combine. Um, and that can be a real challenge. And I think um, imposter syndrome is already already rampant, but then you add on top of it, the fact that um, you're trying to be an expert in two in two fields at the same time, um, it can can be even more so. Um, but I, I, it's, I think the payoff the payoff is is concomitantly better when you're when you're trying to merge a couple of different worlds because that's a, it's a space that others are tend not to be as much in. No, it, it, and I can't believe you use that phrase because remember just before we started, I was going to ask you a question which I haven't asked anyone else. I know a few bought ah. it, and that was imposter syndrome, <laughs> and it just brought it up. So, how confident are you? How often do you get imposter syndrome? Where were you most nervous? So I, I'm glad you asked this because it's it's such a fascinating thing to me that I, I feel I, I don't experience imposter syndrome in very many contexts anymore. I don't know if it's being just like in the Harvard MIT environment. It's just everyone is just so full of themselves and uh, and sort of <laughs> you just sort of absorb it by osmosis. I don't know, but I, I really want to be clear that um, this was not the case at the beginning of my career. So I think I'm a, I'm a good trajectory to follow if you're if you're sort of down here at the moment in, in confidence level um, in your in your career um, maybe this will help this story will help some of the listeners um, so I yeah at the, at the beginning I think like almost every other kind of high achieving person in science um, you have this one well like I look good on paper but you know am I am I really um, am I really all that do I have have what it takes to survive in this career? Um, am I smarter than everybody around me? I had all, all those kinds of anxieties that I, that I understand are really common for everyone. So what to say about, I mean, I, 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 could, I could give a, you know, an hour long lecture on my, my progression um, through this, this trajectory to where I am now, which is not worrying about it. Um, and I think a few things helped. Um, number one, I had a folder of um, all of my different accomplishments and certificates and awards and things like this earlier in my, in my career stage when that was more of a thing. And um, just flipping through that every once in a while remind me of something my, my best friend in grad school said, which is don't compare other people's um, outsides to your insides, right? Like 
you also look awesome on paper. You know, you also have collected these awards. You also um, look fantastically amazing from the outside. And the only reason you, you think you aren't is because you kind of know how you feel on the inside, but you know, that's, that's a comparison you don't need to make. Um, so that's, that's one thing that was helpful. Um, I think as well for me um, over the course of my career, um, it's been really valuable to me to have other sources of, of, um, of identity and value in my life. And so um, perhaps the most obvious one you could imagine is becoming a mom um, was, was one such dramatic uh, um, experience that made me realize that just kind of cemented you know, does it matter if I'm the best, the, the best scientist in the room or the smartest person or what, like, does any of that really fundamentally matter? Or are there other aspects of my life that give me meaning and value and so on? And I think for me as well, um, since the beginning, I, I became a Christian in high school and um, underlying, I think my whole career has been this general sense that um, I don't have to, I don't have to perceive my value as other people see me or how I'm assessed or what my H index is or any of these external, like it, it's part of the, the culture and the faith to, to um, not pay attention to these external sources of value, but instead to, to understand that each person is intrinsically valued and has, has purpose and meaning in the world, whether it's recognized by anyone else outside or not. Um, me living my purpose in life is really, um, is really just, you know, between myself and, and my God. This is cool. And so you, 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 you felt that imposter syndrome, you've had a very successful career, but what have you, what has been the most challenging time in the career? Most challenging career stage. Um, you know, I know it's all so challenging. <laughs> It's all so difficult. Um, I guess I, you know, for me, it probably was just driven by my personal circumstances at the time. But I think starting up a lab was 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 I think the hardest period because I was also doing it while I was raising children, um, and so it was just like everything needed. You know, it's you're building in both cases. You're sort of building a solid foundation. Like things are going to get easier in the future if you can just, you know, if you can just get your first grant and if you can just get your first awesome postdocs joining the lab. If you can just do everything yesterday, then things are going to be easier going forward. And the same thing with children. If I can just get them to sleep through the night, then you know it'll be. So I just need to put in this energy now, and then things will get easier in the future. And so. I do feel like now I'm I'm living in that future where things have gotten easier, but that was that was a, a pretty uh, crunch time for wishing it, trying to get, trying to build this nice foundation across a lot of fronts in my life at one time. How did you cope with that stress? How, how do you petition it? How how did you actually address the stress and move forward? Yeah, I, I think it may be the same answer as the, as the imposter syndrome. I think um, I think having dear friends who understand my my situation and then having this like source of value knowing that um you know i'm going to give it a try if if it doesn't succeed if i don't get any grants then i will find another job and you know i i, I want to be a scientist and i love it's, it's a pretty deep part of my identity um but i can do i can be a scientist in other environments i can not be a scientist at all i can go into business and you know feed my family if that's what i need to do and so kind of trying to detach it's it's hard like i don't mean to make it sound like who cares i'll, I'll just find something else to do but telling myself that at least um kind of lowered the stress levels. If I don't get this grant, it doesn't mean, you know, I'm a terrible person. It doesn't mean I'm a terrible scientist. It doesn't mean I'm unemployable, um, but but it's um, just sort of uh, coaching myself um, internally, I think has been helpful. So from difficulty, from fun 
to difficulty. What's the next big challenge? Where are you heading? What's got to be addressed? What's the big problem to solve? What do you really want to do? That's yeah, a lot of questions. Yeah, so yeah, I think I, I think I do have a, I mean, it's a it's pretty broad and vague answer, but it's a pretty, it's a pretty clear mission from from this point forward. Um, and that is to to really push things more um, translationally and into the clinic. So um, as I said, roughly half the group now is working on the data science of, of images and the informatics of images. And as we become increasingly um, focused on machine learning, it's clear to me that there are a lot of low hanging fruit where the methods of machine learning applied to images. I mean, as microscopists and cell biologists, you know, we love to look at images. We, we understand there's a lot of information there, but I think the, the information content is, is just so much more powerful than we, than we really can absorb um, with our, with our little brains. And so um, I'm, I'm so excited about Less the, the little. But but I think um, really just being able to extract this information and set machine learning algorithms loose to be able to predict um, so that we don't even certain experiments we don't even have to do anymore. We can just um, say, hey, hey, machine learning algorithm, look at all these images that I've treated with 100,000 different drugs and, you know, 50,000 different um, genetic perturbations, knocking genes up, knocking genes down take a look at all of that and tell me all the pathways that exist in, in the cell and how they interact with each other in this cell type, in that cell type and, and so on. Um, there's just a lot to be had there. And I, I, know, there's, um, I know there's skepticism um, about machine learning um, in, in the biology world. And there's certainly some things that it can't do, um, some things it can do very well, some things it can't do, but I, I know there's a lot of low hanging fruit and it seems like we're just coming to the to the orchard and, and starting to reach up. Um, so I, I think the next 10 years are really gonna be about pushing things more in that direction of, of discovering medicines that are useful for particular disorders. I, I would totally agree actually. Uh, I actually think we can't do it without machine learning. I, I think it's the only way forward. But the question is how long until it becomes commonplace to be using machine learning to understand more of our images. Yeah, that's um, yeah, that's a great that's a great question. It's you know it's something you need you need um, data at a certain scale to be able to to um, you know if if you want to know if if a particular gene is unusual you have to test a lot of genes or if you want to know if a particular compound um, is is remarkable in a certain way it, it helps to have the baseline of what everything else looks like and so um, it's not to say that it'll be everywhere in the sense that um, every lab will, you know, all biologists need to be machine learning experts. But I, I mean, we th we've already seen quite a transition as to how computationally savvy most bio most young biologists are these days. Um, they certainly have, they certainly can enter a gene and blast and, and you know, find a match and so on. Like there's certain tools that are, are becoming more and more commonplace. It's hard to find a biologist who hasn't used ImageJ or Cell Profiler to quantify their, their images if they, if they take microscopy images. So I think it, it's, um, you know, at, it's certain tools are going to become really commonplace and, and really user-friendly. We won't really even think about them as, as machine learning tools so much. Um, and others are going to be a little bit more restricted to those who have access to huge data sets and, and really um, the, the latest AI techniques. But um, but yeah, that definitely a, a wave is, is coming. It'd be interesting to see how that is adopted. And could, we missed, I, I think, the, the other important thing to thing to mention is there's so much we miss in our images and when we ask a question or 
we are asking questions of our data and we only look for what we want to see. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And actually, I think machine learning will start pop popping out populations, trends that we are just blind to. Yeah, yeah. Right there. And like you said, it's it's low hanging fruit. It's right there. It's right there for us to to grab. So um, just looking at at um, images in this way, I think there will be a lot that we can capture from it, even without really fancy techniques. So, what was the first microscope you ever used? Can you remember the I, first time you looked down a, a a good microscope, a proper microscope? I, yeah, um, I, you know, I don't, I, I, I couldn't even tell you the the brand of it. I guess it was probably a Zeiss or an Olympus, uh, I don't know, but it was, you know, a kind of, um, I can tell you what mattered about it, which is it was in a big dark room on a big table and had all kinds of contraptions hanging off of it and, and different pieces. And um, my job was to, um, was to basically automate it, um, take up my microscope that was not intended to be automated <laughs> in a real way. And um, I set it up to, to automatically capture images and, um, within the first week, the, the filter completely was like burnt out and, you know, like starting to smoke. And so, um, you know, I thought that, well, that's kind of unfortunate and odd that I just set up my microscope and the filters burnt out or the, um, the sorry, the shutter had, had uh, died on it. And uh, I asked the, I asked the, um, the manufacturer, like, can you send us another one? Cause this one broke and um, they sent another one. And then within a week it was burnt out again. <laughs> called them back and they're like, what are you doing with that shutter? And the answer was, I'm running it literally 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And they're like, yeah, it's not really designed for, for that kind of intensity. So yeah, that's what I remember about the, the first, you know, big scope big that I, that I worked yeah. on. Yeah, right pushing, on. pushing it to the limits, let's say. Yeah, I seem to remember mine having to pour liquid nitrogen in it to chill on the CCD camera. But that, that was, yeah, some years ago now. Yeah. Uh, so some, some quick things, thinking about your first microscope, what about your favorite items in life? So I'm going to ask you, what is your favorite drink? Um, it's going to be water. <laughs> that turn to wine uh, or anything, or is it just water? And that's it. Um, mostly water. I'm not, not I'm, I, I really don't like wine. I somehow have managed to get through like college and grad school and postdoc and children and have never gotten addicted to coffee. So um, I'll drink decaf, but uh, just because it's warm and nice. Um, but yeah, I can't say that I have like a, a, a serious favorite. Yeah, I, 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 it is decaf, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> so, so What's I, that? I, it, yeah, it is decaf coffee that I'm drinking. <laughs> decaf coffee that you've got there, yep. yep. Yeah, mm. uh, yeah I, I do take caffeine, but only a couple of times a week because then you really get the kick. So, yeah, it's it, actually worth it. Yeah, it's actually worth it at that point. But otherwise, decaf, because as you're right, I like the taste. Just, just, but I don't need the caffeine. I, I'd be, I'd be nuts on caffeine. Oh. I'd be wired all the time. Uh, what about your favorite food? What's your favorite food? Probably pad thai. I, so I grew up in, in a, on a farm in Indiana, um, in the most culinarily like drab part of the country um, in a, I'm sorry to say, a, a, um, yeah, upbringing was had no exposure to anything interesting. And so uh, when I went off to grad school um, and then of, of course coming to Boston as well, it's just been so exciting to be exposed to all kinds of different cuisines. So, um, but I know Pad Thai is not particularly the most uh, exotic thing out there, but for me, it was quite a revelation. And what about to cook? Do you cook or do you prefer to yeah. cook? Mostly baking, I would say mostly baking. Um, I've made 
it's got to be in the thousands of batches of cookies at this point in time uh, across the course of my life because I started when I was, you know, seven uh, or so. So yeah, uh, baking is definitely the, the big, um, big. So what's your, what's your signature dish or what's your signature cake or bake? Well, what is your... So it's chocolate chip cookies. Um, yeah, it's pretty, pretty wholesome and American, but yeah, chocolate chip cookies for sure. I have to come and visit if that's the case. Uh, that, for sure. <laughs> I'm on board <laughs> with that. <laughs> Uh, so we talked about your favorite books. What about TV? Do you ever get to watch any TV? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there were definitely many, I mean, there were many years in my, of my life where I didn't have a TV and I was very, very proud of that fact. Um, now that I'm an exhausted parent, I do enjoy watching a, a bit of TV uh, from time to time. Um, but nothing, um, like nothing worth even commenting on. What do I, what do I watch? Like nothing, uh, it's, it's mostly just brainless, uh, brainless kind of trash TV. Yeah, but that, that, that sounds more interesting. Go on, watch, what's, your, <laughs> what's your vice? What's your dirty secret with watching TV? What is it that you're most embarrassed about watching? Oh, every once in a while I'll get sucked into sucked into one of these like relationship um, shows where it's, you know, like however many, not The Bachelor, but those kinds of shows. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I will say like as a middle-aged person, it's much more fascinating these days watching people um, choose houses and then renovate houses. So I, I, I just remember my parents watching this old house when I was uh, a youngster. And um, here, here I am in that stage of life where I find it absolutely fascinating to see what happens when they knock down a wall and then they, they see what horrible uh, electrical or plumbing has happened underneath. You've just called yourself middle-aged. Do you realize that? It's true. It is absolutely true. I'm, I'm 44. Me... I, I don't I don't know that I can expect to live uh, much past 88. So uh, yeah, there, so, there I am. Do you not think of yourself as one of the young generation in science still? Yeah, it's early it's career scientist. scientist. It, science is such a funny thing because you're um, kind of raised on this like you have potential, you have potential, you have potential. And like at some point, you know, you're actually middle aged or, you know, at some point, presumably you become senior. And um, and yet you still always have this mindset of like, I'm up and coming. You know, I'm going I'm to be something someday. Um, so it's, it is a funny career in that sense. But I, I will say you, you do feel middle, middle aged when you notice that all the um, the undergraduate students on campus every year they get younger and younger and younger and younger and you you know you stay the same age but somehow they are getting younger and uh, and at some point you the cognitive dissonance is too strong and you realize yeah I'm actually a middle-aged person. I think you also realize that I no longer wear fashionable clothes compared to what mm -hmm. they're wearing at that point you but, realize but but not because I don't know, it's because I don't care. And that's a really big distinction that I didn't have when I was young. I thought the old people just like didn't realize it or didn't, you know, couldn't couldn't figure out how to be cool. But I, I hadn't realized that they actually have things other all other things in their lives they care about more. So that's that's kind of comforting. I I, I know I know the clothes I am comfortable wearing. It's almost like a brand, if you like. But so so what is your favorite item of clothing? Well, so now, now that we've been in pandemic for a year, it's clearly yoga pants. Um, so that's, uh, that's for sure top front runner for me. And what about music? Music. Um, all my music is kind of stuck from like, you know, 15 to 20 years ago when I used to actually sort of pay attention and go to concerts and this sort of thing. So, um, yeah, I would say it's a, it's a, just a collection of, of, uh, music from back then. <clears throat> Okay. Do you know, I've asked you what your favorites are. What's your least favorite food? Mm, liver was not great. I was told that it was a good thing to eat when I was pregnant and I was 
I gave it a shot, but uh, if, if my children are missing IQ points, it's because I couldn't, I couldn't stomach it. I, I have to challenge that. Kidney? I have not, can't, can't say I've tried. Surely that is worse than liver. I mean, liver, I, I can get liver, but kidneys, that was just, as a child, that was the worst thing that I could, that was definitely not. Growing up on a farm, we had, we, we had our own cattle. Um, so yeah, we, we were exposed to the whole, the whole gamut, but I can't remember. I think we always gave all the weird bits to my grandmother. Um, so I don't recall ever having any of the, the sort of funkier parts that a person might want to eat. So you just gave your grandmother all the awful food, awful food, awful food. I guess it's the same thing, isn't it? It's the same thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I, I, actually, I, I guess if you were, I've, I've got to be careful what I say now, because I'll offend some of the Scots here and their haggis with all the uh, awful that goes into that. Uh, oh, no. I know we've got Andy uh, recording this for us. That will be a... Uh... <laughs> chuckling away and waiting to get his revenge on me after that comment about haggis and just being awful. I am joking, Andy. I actually really quite like haggis. Uh, we've covered quite, we're actually coming up to the hour, which I cannot believe it's been far too fast through, through that. Uh, any, as, as a last thought for, where would you like to see your career end? How would you like to see, do you see yourself becoming emeritus and just keep going? Or do you see, would you like to go out on a swan song and then go back and just sit back? Interesting, interesting. Um, it's hard. It definitely is hard for me to. I mean, I, I don't. I, I like to. I like to think that I'm not a workaholic um, in the sense that I, as I said, I try to constrain my work hours. But I think I, I certainly have the elements of like I would kind of like to keep doing this forever because it's it's you know really an entertaining way to spend one's time and so um, it's hard to say it would it certainly would be nice to stay like deeply connected to science in some way like off into in, into the to the end years but you know I, I like a lot of people um, it's it's kind of fun to imagine just sort of winning the lottery so that you can self-fund your own lab and just sort of just just focus on that for 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 the rest of time so for me I wonder if retirement might be a bit like that just latch on to somebody's lab where they can they can fuss about uh, keeping everyone employed and I can just maybe participate in some kind of loose way that's cool I, and well I, I will see you well before then because <laughs> you're not that middle-aged <laughs> not not <laughs> quite yet I'm not dead yet <laughs> And thank you so much for joining us today. That's been absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much. Really nice to talk to you, Peter. Take care. Oh, keep keep rolling for a minute. So they can edit in. So just so this is, yeah. So this is where you were brought up then. Yeah, so my parents um, had around 100 acres of uh, farmland in Indiana, and you know probably six or eight um, different barns and outbuildings and so on. So that's one of them them there, and uh, it's just beautiful country. It's really a special thing to be able to grow up in the in the wild, so to speak. Um, and that's another view of uh, one of the one of the pastures that's actually mostly wetland. So that's cattails you see in the foreground, but eventually turns into a bit of pasture. Do you miss it? I do. I, I mean. It's, um, I enjoy not living on a farm <laughs> on account of all the chores and work that need to be done, but it is delightful to visit for sure. Um, and, and my kids absolutely love being, being there and seeing all the newborn kittens and, uh, and uh, interesting animals that are there. So it's, it's a wonderful to have it be part of my life without having to actually uh, handle it day to day. But that's where my work ethic comes from. There's it's no, no secret that, uh, that uh, uh, to succeed in science is to some degree a, a function of just 
plowing through things that you don't necessarily want to do um, just to, to kind of get things done. So that's that's where it's come from for me. So genuinely farmer to farmer in that respect. You, you kind of got <laughs> that's right. From agricultural <laughs> farmer to pharmaceutical farmer. That's right. That's right. And thank you again. Sure thing. Thank you for listening to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio podcast sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. To view all audio and video recordings from this series, please visit bitesizebio.com forward slash the microscopists.